Well, welcome. <clears throat> really good to be with you this morning. Today we are finishing up our series called Real Life, Life Lessons from the Book of First John. And it's been a really good series so far. We've covered a couple different themes that are repeated over and over again in First John. And the first one we looked at was the real Jesus, and then the second one we looked at was real sin, and then we looked at real opposition. And, and this, is, this is a letter written by John. He, it's in his older age, he's just like 50 years after Jesus walked on the earth, and he's the last man standing of the 12, the original 12 disciples. And here he is writing this letter to a church that's facing some real struggle and opposition, and we talked about that last week. Today, we're talking about another repeated theme in the book of 1 John called real love. Today is called real love. And now when I say that word love, I know it's a word that we use a lot, right? I mean, literally it is, I mean, you think about books and movies and songs, it is the most the most prolific topic that we have um, in culture and in entertainment. Here's an example, so, oh, let me count the ways. Love is a many splendored thing. Love lifts us up where we belong. All you need is love, right? Any Beatles fans, come on, okay. Or the profound words from the band Meatloaf, I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. <laughs> I love that. We all have our own stories, we all have our own experiences, our own understanding of love. We've all received it to some level, but I'd say for most of us, our experience of love has been lacking. It never seems to hold up to the grand promises and portrayals that we see in culture. Love can easily, in culture or even in our own lives, become its own god. We can elevate that pursuit of love. It can, it can drive us. It's why we work so hard to be loved and accepted by people. Because love, it's a universal longing. It's something we all have. We all want to be loved. We all need to be loved. And love, what we know about love is it's directly connected to value. Directly connected to value. We find a way, I mean, if we're not getting value, if we're not even getting love, if we're not getting value though, for sure, we'll try to take it, we'll start to demand it, or we'll even create it for ourselves. If we try to find a way to, to have value in our lives, I think that's simply because at the core of every human, we know that we're created to be loved. But, to God, there is a really big difference between the love that we see in the world in its various forms, um, narcissistic and possessive and emotional and sugary sweet and, and ever-changing and unpredictable. There's a big difference between that kind of love and the love of God, which is what we're calling today real love. So let's go ahead and pray. Holy Spirit, we just invite your presence to be here with us. Lord, we know you're here, but we say, God, would you come close today? Lord, be present with us. God, we just want to say we praise you and thank you, because you're just worthy of our praise. And so we, we just say, God, we long to encounter you. We long to hear from you today, God. 
And even for those of you here and, and for those that just feel far from you, God, would you draw them close? Would you even give them gifts of faith that they might hear you and sense your presence with them? Pray that your will would be done today, God, that these would be your words in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, the passage that we're looking at today is in 1 John chapter 4, and the concept of love is is so important to John that he discusses it three times in the book of 1 John, and today we are looking at that third passage. But before we dive into the word today, I want to give you a little context by looking at the author, looking at John. Now, what we know about John is that he refers to himself as the one that Jesus loved. He literally calls himself the beloved disciple. I wish we would do that. You know, walk around and be like, hey, I'm Heather, I'm the beloved one. You know, (laughs) we don't really refer to ourselves like that, but John did. And he's the one who leaned his head, I think Andrew talked about this last week, leaned his head on the shoulder or the chest of Jesus in the upper room. And that, that was the last, the last Supper, right? Right before Jesus goes to the cross. And, and Jesus himself in that, in that room commanded the disciples, guys, you gotta love one another. You gotta love one another. He knew the real Jesus. And here is John at the end of his life, the last living disciple. And in this letter, he's not just telling us or reminding us what to believe or what to do. He's telling us what he remembers firsthand. Remember, John is writing this letter to believers confronted by teachings of who Jesus is or isn't. And and John is saying, guys, I knew him. I, I touched the real Jesus. I walked with Jesus. And this is so helpful to remember that love is not just a topic that, you know, John just likes to talk about. Love transformed John. It transformed his life. And, and we really see this and vividly in a story that's actually passed down about John in his last years of ministry. There was a historian, his name was Eusebius, and he lived in the third century AD, and he was one of the first church historians of the early Christian church. And he preserves a story about John's ministry in the last years of his life. Now, it's not in the Bible, but it's a little piece of history And I think it sets us up well to to look at this passage today. So according to Eusebius, John was discipling a young man. And before he left to go travel and visit some of his other churches, he, he actually told one of the church leaders, he said, hey, will you take care of this young man that I've been discipling? Will you watch over him? Will you continue the work that I've been doing, you know? And, and, and so he leaves, and, and then after a long while, he comes back, and, and of course, he asks about the young man, and the church leader just starts to cry and weep, and, and he says, he's dead, he's dead, and, and John's like, what, what happened? And he says, he's dead to God. He's dead to God. He's fallen back in with old friends and he's gone back to a life of crime and and now lives as a leader of a band of robbers up in the mountains where no one can go because if anyone tries to get near the hideout, they're killed and and so he's dead, He's, he's dead to God. And according to Eusebius, at that point, John ripped his cloak in an expression of grief and he says, get me a horse. So this 80-year-old man gets on this horse 
and rides up into the mountains where it's death to go. And when he gets up there, of course, the robbers who keep watch, they grab him and he says, it's okay, it's okay, I wanted to be captured. Take me to your leaders. And so they bring this old man before the leaders. And one of those leaders, of course, is that young man that John discipled. And immediately he recognizes him. And this is what Eusebius says. At this point, this young man, though armed, began to run away. He took off and this old man, John, runs after him and cries, why flee from me? I'm an old unarmed man. Don't you see there's still hope of life for you? I gladly suffer death for you as the Lord suffered death for us. I'll give my own life in exchange for yours. Stop, listen, trust me. And Eusebius says, hearing these words, the man stopped. He hurled away his weapons and trembling began to weep bitterly and he came back. You know how John learned to love like this? John learned to love like this because he knew the love of Jesus. He knew the love of Jesus. So with this picture and the story in mind, let's read our passage for today. 1 John 4, 7 through 21. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. And this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that, the, that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and we rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. And this is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love the brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and their sister. Now we know that love especially in God's word, it's a pretty big topic. We could do a four-part series just on this topic alone. But there are three specific things I wanna look at in this passage today. Just simply this, where does real love come from? What does real love look like? And how does real love transform us? So first, where does real love 
come from? And I really think we have to start here. We have to start at the beginning. Does love begin as a feeling from somewhere inside of us? Is that, you know, love's impetus? Is that where it starts? What's its source and what's its source? In 1 John 4, 7 and 8, John answers this question pretty clearly. He says, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. I love that. God is love. Love is not God. We can easily switch around the statement and start to assign our own definitions or even experiences of love to God. Love does not define God. God defines love. God defines love. And God, (laughs) he cannot fall into love because he is love. God cannot fall in love for the same reasons that water can't get wet. It is wet, it's water, right? Love is not just an attribute of God. It is not just an attribute of God. It is part of his nature. It's part of who he is. And it is in this settled disposition toward us that his love flows from his being and from his nature. You know, human love, it's usually response love. But God's love always comes first, always comes first. His love creates and gives value to its object. Do you hear that? His love creates and gives value to its object, whether there's any intrinsic value to it or not. Love has its source in God. Just as light radiates from the sun, love radiates from the very nature of God. God's love for us is motivated by who he is, not by who we are. Not by who we are. 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. You know what that means for us? You know what that means for us? That love starts with God? That means that we can come as we are. That's like a huge burden off our shoulders. We can come as we are. We don't have to clean ourselves up to be loved by God. We can come to him no matter what we've done. Boy, let that sink in. We can come to him no matter what we've done. I love what Cory Ten Boom, who, boy, she has some experience in this. She was a Holocaust survivor. There is no hole so deep that God's love is not deeper still. There's no hole so deep that God's love is not deeper still. There's nothing you've done that the cross does not cover. It doesn't matter how we've blown our lives up in the past. God's love can reach into the deepest, darkest, and most desperate of places. He loves to do that. In Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't deserve his love, 
We didn't deserve his love. He gives it as a free gift because that's simply who he is. That's who he is. And I think maybe some of us here today, we need to hear that. We need to hear that that God doesn't say, I'll love you after. (laughs) I'll love you after you clean yourself up or you do this and that. There's no condition to God's love. He says, you can come You can come to me high, you can come to me drunk, you can come to me broken, you can come to me divorced, you can come to me completely addicted, you can come to me dealing with same-sex attraction, you can come to me abused, you can come to me hurt, you can come to me rejected because I will never reject you. I will never reject you. Religious people often are offended by this, right? ruffles our feathers a little bit. We're not so sure we want to do life or go to church with people like that. (laughs) And we forget. We forget that the the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We are all undeserving of what Christ did for us. It is a gift. We did not earn it and we did not deserve it. It is a gift. So then what does real love look like? What does it look like? What's a true picture or definition of real love? Because I'll tell you, there's a lot of false representations out there. And again, that word love, boy, it is so overused, right? We can love pizza, we can love the Buckeyes, and we can love our husband and kids all in the same sentence and using all the same word. (laughs) It's, It's used for everything nowadays. But in the Greek, there are four words that can be translated into our English word love. And three of those four words occur in the New Testament. And so we're going to look at those real quickly. The first one is eros. Primarily means a physical kind of love. It's not negative, but but it is where we get our word erotic from. So think of it this way. Eros is I love you if. I love you if. And then there's phileo. We see that word in our English word, Philadelphia, right? The city, city of brotherly love. It's the kind of love you have for a friend or a family member. So think of it this way. Think of it as, I love you because. I love you because. And then, there's agape. The word is used to describe God's love for the church. It's unconditional love. It's preferential love that's chosen and acted out by the will. I love you no matter what. I love you no matter what. Now guess which Greek word John uses over and over again, a form of which he uses about 26 times in this passage alone. Give you a hint, it's not eros. (laughs) It's agape, agape. Agape love is unselfish in nature, a love that gives and expects nothing in return, a love that's in spite of what you've done, in spite of of all the things that have happened in your past. It's a a love that says, I love you anyways, regardless of the circumstances. It's a love that puts the needs of the other person before your own. That's the kind of love that God has for us. C.S. Lewis describes it this way. He calls it gift love. Gift love, in God there is no hunger that needs to be filled only plenteousness that desires to give. It's kind of love in us 
enables us to love those who to us are naturally unlovable. Just think of the kinds of people that Jesus loved in the Gospels. He loved Mary Magdalene with her sordid past, and and there was the rich young ruler, and and Nicodemus, the religious Pharisee, and and Zacchaeus, the greedy tax collector. I mean, nobody despised tax collectors. I mean, they were just seen as the worst. And here's Jesus fastening his eyes on this, this guy in a tree, and he calls him by name, Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, come down. I want to come to your house today. I want to eat with you and fellowship with you. Think about the love and the care that Jesus showed women. I mean, they were treated with very little respect in that day, and Jesus elevates their worth and their value. But there's no better demonstration of, of love given in the entire Bible than the love of God and Jesus demonstrated on the cross. Many of us know John 3.16, we know that one, but let's read 1 John 3.16. And this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And later on in chapter four, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus died for the whole world. I know you hear a lot of brothers and sisters in this passage, but what we know is that Jesus died for all of us. He loves everyone, and he calls us to do the same, right? His love is not exclusive. It's intended for the sinner. It's intended for the Jew and the Gentile. Julia Pickerel said it well when she said, love took on a whole new definition in Jesus because he widened its boundaries until there were none outside its embrace. None outside its embrace. Because of Jesus, we all qualify to receive his love. In 1 John 4.18, there's no fear in love. The perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment, and the one who fears is not made perfect in love. It's another aspect of the definition of love. When, When love comes, fear goes. Fear is the characteristic of someone who expects to be punished, who expects to be punished. When we see God as only the judge, as the king and the lawgiver, we're not seeing his full nature. Because when we do, fear is swallowed up in love. The fear that remains is simply the fear of not grieving his love for us. You know, if my daughter, if my daughter fears me, she's, she doesn't trust truly in that unconditional love that I have for her. She doesn't trust that her status isn't gonna change based on what she does or doesn't do. And then when she does something wrong, she's not gonna come to me and confess it, is she? She's probably gonna hide it and try to hide what she did. And, and you see that when we doubt God's love, shame starts to win. When we think our behavior or what we've done, because nobody knows what I did back then. Nobody knows what I did in my past. 
somehow that determines God's love for us, then fear starts to take over. Fear starts to take over. I have a funny example of this. My daughter, my daughter's in preschool and, and she's also, bless her little heart, she's, she's gluten-free, which can be really hard for a five-year-old. It's hard enough for me, let alone her. And one day after class, she was sitting on the couch with this really sad look on her face. If you've ever seen my daughter, she has the best expressions. So that little lip was sticking out and I'm like, sweetie, what's going on? And, and she said, mama, I need to tell you something. And I'm like, whew, what's going on here? And she said, today we had a birthday party for my friend Faswick. And then she starts to sob. Mommy, I ate a donut and it had sprinkles on it. <laughs> she just starts to bawl. And I'm, of course, trying not to giggle because it's the cutest thing in the world. And I'm, I'm just so blessed and glad that she came to me and confessed it. But she knows, what I love is that she knows that my love for her is secure. Her value doesn't change in my eyes just because she did something wrong or because she failed at something. Now, our love for my daughter is, is also not permissive. It's not weak. Um, there is truth in love, so I've definitely reaffirmed <laughs> that even that then and even a couple days later when she had a really bad bellyache, that we don't eat gluten. <laughs> That's just a rule. That's a rule that we have because simply we want what's best for her. We want what's best for her. And that's God's heart for us. He wants our best. He doesn't want shame and he doesn't want fear to have a say in our lives because he paid for that. He paid for that on the cross. And he wants us to experience the freedom of living in the light of his love and of his will for our lives. It is his kindness that leads us to repentance. His kindness that leads us to repentance, not fear. So then how, how should real love transform us? What's the outcome of love in us? And what should be our response? <clears throat> Recently in small group, we asked the question, what's one thing you've seen change in your life since you came to know Jesus? And one girl in our group honestly answered, she said, I didn't really like people before I started coming to this church. She said, no, really, really, as we're all kind of giggling. She said, I hated people. Like, I, I, I hated people. But now, because of Jesus, she said, I actually like people. I actually like people. <laughs> How cool is that? What an amazing example of Christ's work in us. You know, real love is transformative. It's transformative. God's love transforms everything it touches. And we see that all in this passage. And in Romans 12, one through two, and so dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. And you will learn to know God's will for you, which is a good and pleasing and perfect. You know, when we know that we are the beloved, it creates this deep well of gratitude and thanks and love for God. 
During his only visit to the United States, the eminent Swiss theologian, theologian Karl Barth, if you've ever read some of his books, lectured at Union Seminary in Richmond, Virginia, and after his formal address, he engaged in some informal conversation with the students, and one young man asked Barth, he said, if you could state the core of what you believed, can you state the core of what you believe? And, and Barth took a moment to light his pipe, and then as the smoke drifted away, he replied, yes, I think I can summarize my theology in these words. You ready? Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so. <laughs> in 1 John 4, 15 through 16, it says, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them, and they in God, and so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. What does this word lives mean? He repeats it many times, actually about six times in verses 12 through 16, and, and it means abide. It means to remain. And we know what Jesus says. Jesus says, I want you to remain in my love. Stay there, stay there, abide in my love. Rich Nathan says this, he says, love is not an airport that you fly out of in order to get to where you're going. Love is like the soil that a tree is planted in, without which the tree will die. Love is like water for fish. <laughs> Do we really and truly understand that we are loved by God? Because we can't give it unless we've received it, right? Are we abiding in his love? Or, or do we just think of God's love as some kind of generic love for the world and oh, that's great and God is good. It's no, he, he created you. He created you and he knows you. He knows how many hairs are on your head or how many aren't. <laughs> he knows you and he knows all the pains from your past. He knows all the hurts and the struggles that you're going through right now. He knows you and he loves you. And when we have a true revelation of how God looks at us, what we receive is this, this confidence and this assurance of knowing that we are loved, that we are secure in this love that God has for us. And that starts to pour over into to how we act toward other people. And, and honestly, we stop defending ourselves as much. We stop, we stop self-protecting, right? And we're not so guarded in the way that we interact with other people because we know that we're accepted. We know that we're accepted, that we're valued, that our status doesn't change. Romans 8, 38 through 39, love this. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in creation, he's pretty much covering it all, will be able to separate us from what? The love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our response to being given this kind of real love should be to just Love him back. It should be to love. It should, be, it should look like obedience. It should look like trust, putting our trust and our hope in him, where we call him Abba Father. 
Abba, Father. And then what we see next is that that kind of love, when received by God, when, when our gratitude and our praise you know, comes right back to the Lord, it starts to overflow into how we treat other people. It overflows. In John 13, 34 through 35, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You know what I love about love? Real love is catching. Real love is catching. It's like no other subject. It really isn't. You, you can't just understand love. You know, let's, let's take a course on love and then we'll go out and do that thing. We'll go do, we'll love people. It's more like measles than it is like math. Real love is more like measles than it is like math. It should be contagious. It should be contagious. When you are around Jesus, when you're living life, with, when you're abiding with Jesus, his love for other people should rub off on you. It should pour out of you. This is what John says is the essence and the evidence of Christian living is if we love other people, if we love other people. Now, let's just be honest. We all have people in our lives that we can think of that we're like, you know what, God, I could pass on that one at least, you know, that person. I mean, you know what they did to me. Uh, or they just really, like, they truly, they hurt me too much. They just hurt me too much. They betrayed me or they even abused me. They don't deserve to be loved. You know what Jesus says? Jesus says, you don't deserve to be loved or helped, but I loved you. So love them as I have loved you. Boy. <clears throat> Sometimes it's simply an act of obedience especially to forgive those who have hurt you. That's not natural, that doesn't feel like, I can't do that. It's an act of obedience. Look at what Jesus says when he was nailed to the cross, while he was being nailed to the cross. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Wow, such love, such grace. How could I ever have that kind of love for other people? And that just seems, really? Like, could I really have that kind of love for people? In Romans 5, 5, and I don't have this up on the, the slides, but it says this, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Ooh, <laughs> thank you, Lord. God gives us his love, that real love, that agape love through the Holy Spirit. It's evidence that he lives in us and he pours it out. He fills us up with what we don't have, what we don't have. So who, who is in your life that when you see them, you have to ask for God's help to love them? <laughs> If you're only around people that it's just really easy to love, then you might not be maybe where God wants you to be, because God always has a few people, you know, that he's working on you with. I can remember a time I really needed God's help to love somebody. That was a precursor. I don't re recommend any of this to anyone. 
just saying that. Uh, but at the time, uh, I was co-leading a small group with my boyfriend. <clears throat> Not a good idea, especially when he breaks up with you. And then all of a sudden, you're left with this predicament. Who takes the kids? <laughs> Who takes the group? Uh, now that you've broken up. And, and I remember being uh, you know, chivalrous and, and saying, oh, you can take the group, it's okay. You know? and, and I just, I just won't, I won't be a leader anymore. I mean, this is way too hard, right? I mean, I can't lead with my co-leader, that's my ex-boyfriend. And I remember that night when I didn't go to group and I went home and I, whew, I just bawled. I was emotional. I was like, Lord, I can't do this. I love these people too much. I was like, these are my people. I was like, you know what, he's gonna have to leave. <laughs> and I had this boldness and I called him the next day and I said, okay, either we gotta work this out or you're leaving, because I'm not. I was like, these are my people. I love these people, I'm not leaving. And so we did what, like I said, I would never recommend doing. <clears throat> and we led, I led with my ex-boyfriend for about two years. Talk about hard. <laughs> Especially when a couple, you know, Months later, he starts dating somebody else, and all those same feelings of hurt and rejection come sweeping up. And I remember the Lord telling me, he's like, ah, you're not supposed to talk about this with the girls in the group. And so it was a secret battle, because I felt like I was supposed to honor him in that way. I wasn't supposed to talk about like, how, he, how he, you know, you know, I fill in the blank, hurt me. Um, and the Lord said, that's something I want to work on your heart. And boy, did he ever. I'm just telling you, when, when, when God puts you in situations where you're doing life with people that are just difficult to love, or just hard to love for whatever reason, boy, he does a work on your heart. Because you can't do it in your own strength. You can't. And, and you know, I, I look back on that time, and like I say, I don't recommend that, but I wouldn't trade it for anything because of what God did to my heart. What he did to my heart in that time. I mean, boy, my desperation was high. Boy, I needed the Lord. And you know what's so cool is I can look back on that and say, God, thank you for that. Because now that guy, that guy is my dear friend. And he, he came to my wedding and I came to his. And I couldn't have done that if you hadn't have placed me there. If I hadn't have worked on my heart with you in that time. Again, in First John, 316 through 18, it says, this is, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And then he goes on to say this, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Jesus is our example. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. Whew, heavy hitter. So how do I lay my life down for people? How do I lay my life down for people? Do I have to push someone out of the way from an oncoming bus every single day just to prove my love for them? <laughs> I don't think that we have opportunities so dramatic coming around in our life every day, right? But John doesn't miss a beat, and he, he knows this. And he goes on and he says, but when you see a brother in need and you have enough to give him, that's what it looks like to follow Christ. But to shut your heart and refuse to give is to show that you really have no love of God in your heart. The willingness to surrender that which has value for us to enrich the life of another, now that's laying down your life 
for a friend. Love is not just words as we see in this passage. It is one person, whew, okay. There's some of us that need to hear this today. (laughs) Lord, help us be soft. There's There's one person choosing the needs of another person ahead of their own needs. It is one person choosing to put the preferences of another person in front of their own preferences. One person choosing to sacrifice their convenience, their comfort, their time, their money, their sleep, (laughs) to promote the well-being, the needs, even the dreams of another person. (laughs) One person laying down their life for another person. It's the hardest of all sacrifices, let's just be honest because it means we're dying to ourselves. (laughs) We're dying to ourselves. Loving them, giving to them, doesn't always necessarily change them. Boy, I wish it would, and sometimes it does. But there's no guarantee there. But there is a guarantee that it'll change you. It will change you. In closing, the question I want to leave for us is this. If this is true, if this real love that God gives us so freely, that he pours into us so freely, will we then accept that we are God's beloved, that our status is secure? Will we accept that? And then will we overcome, we choose out of an act of obedience at times, to overcome all the petty reasons for not loving one another? Will we start to ask God to help us to see people like he sees them? Amen? Well, let's go ahead and stand. We're gonna just wait on the Lord for a little bit and, and take some time to just listen to him and invite his, his, his presence to come, just meet us. When we were worshiping, I, I had a picture of a, a big tree, and I don't know if you've been outside with all the wind whipping around, but I had a picture of a tree just bending, bending under the weight of like God's love. And so, Lord, right now, we just, we ask your presence to come. Come, Holy Spirit. Hmm. Come, Holy Spirit. More of you here. Lord, we need you. Or we just give you this space. Mm.